Hello everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram. My username is Law Lockdown. Check out my website, www.lockdownlaws.com. And finally, if you have the time, please give me a rating on Apple Podcast. Either way, thank you for listening, and I appreciate your support. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. My guest today is David Greenberg. David is a professor at Rutgers University. He's a historian and author of the book, Nixon's Shadow. Professor Greenberg is also a Yale graduate and has a PhD from Columbia. Professor, thank you for joining me today. Sure, it's my pleasure. So why did you want to become a history professor? Well, I was interested in history really ever since I was a kid. Um, I think it started with an interest in sort of the near past, the recent past, and probably a lot of people can relate to that desire to sort of understand the times just before you were born or, you know, grew to mature consciousness. And, uh, you know, we had a family in which we talked about politics a lot. So sort of politics and history all kind of um, merged together into a, a set of interests. And um, then I sort of came to understand history as a way of explaining why the world is how it is, you know, the story of how we got here. Um, so lots of interests that I had, again, even as a kid, whether it was baseball or rock music, I sort of gravitated toward the history of those things. So, you know, I liked history in high school. I majored in history in uh, college. Uh, interestingly, my senior essay advisor uh, at Yale said to me, you know, look, given that you love writing and you love uh, recent history and politics, this was a period where academic history was really moving away from politics. He said, you might consider becoming a journalist. You know, a lot of the best history, you know, he pointed to books like Anthony Lucas's Common Ground about the Boston busing crisis uh, and a number of others. You know, a lot of the best political history of recent times is done by journalists. And uh, I did spend five years as a full-time journalist. And then while I enjoyed it, and obviously I still keep a hand in journalism, I write for Politico and I've written for the New Republic and Slate and lots of other places. You know, there was something about journalism. You're always caught up in the argument of the day. There's something ephemeral and a little bit unsatisfying, even at an intellectual place like the New Republic, or at least the New Republic used to be. Um, and, and so that desire to go somewhere, you know, academia, where you could really dig deep, um, sort of began to uh, tug at me. And so after several years in D.C. journalism, I uh, went to graduate school. And since then, I've sort of tried to maintain this I wouldn't even say it's a dual career exactly because the two impulses of doing historical scholarship and 
journalistic contributions really stem from the same place. They're just sort of different expressions of, of similar uh, efforts to work out and think about different kinds of problems. Well, and I bet uh, interacting with your students has got to be really rewarding. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, it feels a little bit funny because this year I'm actually on a fellowship leave. And last year I really interacted with them just like this over a screen, which was sort of not, not as bad as I feared, but also not as rewarding as the real thing. Um, so it's been a while since I've been literally in the classroom. Um, and I do miss that. Well, what's your favorite period or topic to teach? Well, it sort of changes. Um, I think the period that first simulated my interest in history was the 60s. And, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. And one of the first published pieces I wrote was in a volume called Next, Young American Writers on the New Generation, where a number of us who were for whatever reason, sort of tapped in our early 20s as like spokesman for Generation X, wrote essays about, it was right when the whole Gen X craze was taking off. And I wrote my, it was called In the Shadow of the 60s. And I do think there's something about my generation having not only missed the 60s, but having just missed the 60s. <laughs> and that what came after in the 70s and especially the 80s seems so much more mundane and unexciting, whether it's the music, the politics, the, you know, the art and literature. There's something about the 60s that, that I think continued through Generation X. And I think also to some degree through successive generations to capture the imagination. I mean, look, there's 80s nostalgia, but now there's 90s nostalgia, but it's not the same. Um, so the 60s was really the period that first um, kind of captivated my interest. But then that interest expanded. I've taught classes on the Cold War. I've taught a class um, recently on sort of the Trump era, you know, how we got to Trump looking, I would say, at the 30 years or so leading up to 2016 and what were the developments and trends that sort of shaped and reshaped American society and culture. And then topically, another course that I've taught a lot is the presidency. Um, it's sort of interesting. There aren't too many historians who teach the presidency. It's usually taught in political science departments, and it's taught sort of here are the powers of the presidency and kind of through all these different political science concepts. And that, of course, is a perfectly legitimate and important way to think about the office. But my, again, my mind just naturally gravitates to a historical narrative. And I find that students want to know how, you know, okay, let's go back to George Washington. And although you can't really cover all the individuals in a course like this, you kind of cover the most important individuals. You cover changes in the uh, um, office. You sort of look at... Um, you know, controversies about the presidency and, and how those have evolved over the years. We do some on, you know, a lecture on television and the presidency or uh, the history of presidential elections. That's a really fun class. I've now taught for many years and uh, always, I think, um, gets a good, good uh, student reaction. Yeah. One thing that's been uh, frustrating me lately is the power of the presidency. 
you know, I think if you study uh, constitutional law, you realize the the framers in the beginning really set it up as a weak position. You know, Congress is supposed to declare war. Executive actions are supposed to be limited. And the power has just grown and grown on the left and right. Both are guilty of it. But um, I don't I think if the if the framers saw what it is today, they'd be really disappointed. I, I, th- I think that is probably true. And, you know, one way I illustrate this is I remind um, students that, you know, Article one of the Constitution is about Congress, that like it's it, you, you kind of if you were to just ask a random person, OK, which is about Congress, which is about the presidency, they probably put presidency number one. At the same time, I also kind of have come in my own scholarship to see and appreciate, even with a powerful executive branch and presidency, there are still these incredible limits on what the president can do. And there's a sort of unwillingness to recognize that or impatience with that fact on the part of a lot of political activists, or even just, you know, these days everyone sort of feels. Uh, in terms of politics, they want their agenda enacted now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't, you know, no excuses. And it sort of leads to a kind of thinking of, well, look, you know, Biden's president, he should just be able to do this or he should just be able to do that. And of course, there are constraints, not only the other branches of government, which are real uh, constraints, but also public opinion, also um you know, economic constraints, there's all, all kinds of limits. And so sort of the, the whole question of when a president needs to push against those limits to try to act more um, aggressively in order to achieve needed reforms, which a lot of people today feel like we're not doing enough, versus when presidents are overreaching and aggrandizing too much power, which people at the same time also think the president is doing, you know, it's, it's an interesting uh, framework for thinking about um, the presidency and our politics. Yeah, it sure is. Okay. Well, let's get into a uh, tricky Dick, president Nixon. So first of all, what prompted you um, to write your book? And again, the book is called Nixon's shadow. What prompted you to write that book? So, you know, as I said, I always had this interest in the 60s and the recent past. And for me, Nixon and Watergate, uh, you know, constituted some of my earliest memories of events beyond my own family and life and circumstances, right? It was, this was, um, you know, one of the first things I remember my parents talking about or hearing about on the news. and it was a big thing. You know, I came to know pretty at a pretty young age that this had been a fairly cataclysmic event in our history, uh, Watergate and the Nixon presidency. And so from a young age, I had a desire to understand it better. Um, I remember reading, I think it was in ninth grade, All the President's Men. And, uh, you know, later I actually worked for Bob Woodward, which was kind of a dream come true, having kind of grown up on that book. And um, 
so, you know, I had this, this sense that something changed with Nixon. I, I talked about the excitement of the 60s that my generation missed out on. You know, Watergate was a kind of watershed. Something happened. And after Nixon and Watergate, a lot of the promise and idealism and hope and excitement of the 60s uh, gave way to sort of the frustration and alienation of the 70s. Now, of course, one obvious reason for this that many historians and lots of other people will cite quite accurately is, well, you know, Nixon violated the public trust in this fundamental way. And that, along with Lyndon Johnson's uh, lying about Vietnam, you know, the two of those things together kind of conspired to kind of wreck the public's faith in the presidency and democracy and a lot of things. And actually, if you look at polling on public trust in government, it's really at these astronomical highs under John F. Kennedy and the early Lyndon Johnson years, and it, it sort of quickly plummets after that. But I also thought, you know, there was another reason, a little more subtle, for this change in our political culture. And I came to see that that had to do with political image making. And in the age of television in particular, um, although I later came to realize it did not begin with television, um, there arose this widespread belief that politics had been reduced to just this kind of contest of images. And we still have this concern and it's still in our discourse today when we talk about authenticity, and spin. This was, you know, a theme of my second book, Republic of Spin. Um, technically, my third book, but second big book um, after um, after Nixon's shadow. So Nixon's shadow, and of course, there's a pun there with the shadow that the light casts on the wall, and shadow as image, but also the shadow of um, his five o'clock shadow, which in the 1960 debates against Kennedy. Uh, were said to cost him the election. So, you know, Nixon's shadow is upon, on the five o'clock shadow, um, Nixon's long shadow across our landscape, and, and the way, you know, that he is an image as well as a political actor. And the book is really sort of a study of the many different Nixons that different groups of Americans came to imagine. Um, and when I talk about political images, you know, I think there's a false conception out there that politicians' images are phony. And they're rarely phony. Often they're um, tailored, they're embellished, they're partial, they're incomplete. But usually, I think it's safe to say they're, they're rooted in certain real qualities that the politician possesses. And the politician is sort of trying to project a certain self, a certain persona. But then, of course, it gets filtered through the news media, but also through the attitudes and values of different groups of Americans. So they end up creating a different version. And so Nixon's shadow, in a way, is the story not of what Nixon did, but of what Nixon meant to a series of groups of Americans starting in the 40s when Nixon is kind of this young, seemingly clean-cut conservative uh, politician running for Congress up through 
the late Nixon, who gets reinvented by historians as somehow being a liberal. And I kind of try to knock that down or, or, or debunk that a bit, but also to recognize that that image too is a product of a certain moment uh, in history um, and does, doesn't necessarily represent any definitive verdict on, on who Nixon really was. What's interesting about Nixon, I think why he lends himself to this kind of a study is because throughout his career, there's this recurring discourse about who is the real Nixon? You see that question asked all the time. Think about the Nixon mask. I actually opened the book with some movie scenes where the Nixon mask comes into play. And Nixon is often described as a man behind a mask. Adlai Stevenson in the 50s called him a man of many masks and says, who can say they have seen his real face? So this search for the real Nixon, um, that whole um, set of tropes really is with Nixon his whole career. And I think it's with many politicians, but it's kind of with Nixon in an especially intense or acute form. So he kind of lends himself to a study in political image making, partly because he kept his inner feeling so bottled up and he was so obsessively concerned with image. You know, all politicians are, of course, but, you know, Nixon was even more so. That's fascinating that you talk about his uh, five o'clock shadow um, costing him. I was thinking about Marco Rubio, the conservative, when he uh, went to go get a sip of water, how that cost him. And right. then uh, on the left, there was Howard Dean, who was just being passionate and he you know, yelled at a rally or something and that cost him. It's fascinating how, uh, how fickle the American public is. <laughs> Right. And, you know, another famous one is Ed Muskie in 72 was the front runner for the Democratic nomination. And at a rally in the snows of New Hampshire, he was perceived to be crying out of rage toward this uh, New Hampshire publisher who had been saying scurrilous things about Muskie's wife. Later, people thought maybe it was just melting snow, but it took hold that Muskie cried and this, you know, helped sink his candidacy. Now, sometimes the media overhypes these and the truth of the matter, like take Howard Dean, Howard Dean's candidacy ended not because he yelled. He yelled because he finished, what, third or fourth in Iowa when he was supposed to come in first. So his candidacy was already, candidacy was already sunk. Even Nixon's five o'clock shadow, well, it's true, he did not come off so well versus Kennedy. But the real thing was that Kennedy, who had been sort of presumed to be this somewhat lightweight playboy senator, not as uh, substantive as the sitting vice president, went on television and showed himself to be highly articulate, conversant with all the issues around the world. He could go to toe to toe with Nixon and hold his own. Yeah, he was also more handsome and looked look better on TV. But, you know, that uh, th there's no real evidence to support the fact that uh, that was what did it for Kennedy. A lot of people just use their judgment. Maybe we sometimes make superficial judgments, but we also, you know, we also can kind of take the measure of a man when we hear him talk for an hour and, and form an impression that, you know, probably has some uh, grounding in reality. Yeah. Well, and then another fascinating point you make is now, um, people refer to Nixon as having some liberal ideologies. I mean, with respect to the environment, 
you can make a strong argument that President Nixon did more for to protect the environment than any other president. You're talking about overseeing the Clean Air Act, Endangered Species Act, Clean Water Act. What do you make of that? Well, I think Nixon really didn't give a shit about the environment, but he was present at a time when environmentalism was on the rise, certainly concerns with air and water pollution, especially, which, you know, they are like the easy parts of environmentalism. He had a Democratic Congress. He was the first president since, uh, I think it was Zachary Taylor in 1848, to enter office with the opposing party controlling both houses of Congress. Oh, wow. Um, you know, this, this, it was 1969. It was a liberal time. And his real love as a policymaker was foreign policy. And he sort of thought, you know what, I'll, I'll give the liberals what they want on a lot of these domestic issues uh, and, and have a free hand in foreign policy. It's also important to remember that in those days, there weren't really Republican or conservative policy shops or think tanks. So if you were looking to staff your administration and you went to places like the Brookings uh, Institute or whatever, they were all liberals. People who went into government believed that government was there to do good. So he had people like Daniel Patrick Moynihan you know, working for the White House, even Bob Finch, who was his uh, HEW secretary, you know, was a pretty, you know, today he would be called a moderate, maybe even a liberal Republican. Um, and, and a lot of the people who, who worked for Nixon in environmental policy were, um, you know, if not flaming liberals, certainly um, they took environmentalism seriously. Uh, by Reagan's era, that would not happen. By Reagan's time, the conservative movement, which Nixon actually tried to sort of found and nurture, uh, had matured so that you could go to Heritage, you could go to the American Enterprise Institute and get all these guys who you could then put throughout your administration who are committed to doing policy, but to doing conservative policy. There just weren't that many people like that, like Eisenhower had to take businessmen. And of course, businessmen typically will give you more conservative policy. But, you know, the mission of the, of the federal government was changing. So I, I, I actually don't put that much stock in these ideas of Nixon as somehow a great society liberal. I think he was kind of caught in his times. And so you could say perhaps the Nixon administration did a lot of liberal things, but I wouldn't say Nixon did. Well, he... Uh wasn't very good for the environment of Southeast Asia, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a lot of Agent Orange. Yeah. Well, let's back up a little bit. Um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about Nixon's early life? Sure. Nixon um, came from Southern California, um, a Quaker background, although, you know, the Quakerism of Southern California was not sort of the pacifist Quakerism of uh, Pennsylvania and other parts we know, you know, it, it grew out of that, but it mingled much more with the kind of fervent conservative evangelicalism of Southern California to create a somewhat different uh, variety of, of Quakerism. Um, all the same, you know, his mother uh, 
you know, talked about peace and wanted him to be a peacemaker. And he did sort of come to invest his view of foreign policy ultimately with that. And on his tombstone, he has something like the greatest honor that uh, history can bestow is the title of peacemaker. And he liked to say he brought peace to Vietnam, although, you know, as you just alluded to, that's, you know, that, that's a bit of spin. Um, you really have to look hard at his Vietnam policy to consider him a peacemaker there, although, you know, there was a peace treaty. Um, so as a youth, um, he somewhat exaggerated the hard scrabble uh, upbringing. He was not by any means wealthy, but neither was he impoverished. They struggled. His father owned a gas station. You know, he did okay. Um, he probably the bigger trauma for Nixon was uh, the death of two of his brothers, um, especially his older brother, Harold, who he really uh, revered. And, you know, it's, it's hard to psychoanalyze. I actually have in my book all chapter on sort of the, the psycho historians, the psychobiographers, because when Nixon becomes president, using the psychoanalytic approaches to understand politicians is kind of at its high point as an intellectual fashion. But, you know, there is something to it. It clearly created in him sense of, um, you know, the fragility of life, a, a sense of urgency, a, a sense of things take, being taken from him unfairly, perhaps. And he always had this sense of great entitlement uh, that he should be able to break the rules because, you know, people had been unfair to him. Um, I think also um, in his youth, you see some instances of a kind of um, inclination to rage and violence that kind of come out later. You know, there's one incident of him hitting another kid with a hatchet. Um, so there's, there's clearly a lot of unresolved uh, rage, anger that he never uh, makes peace with. And on the one hand, that's part of the drive. That's part of what fuels him. It fuels his ambition to make him a successful politician. But it also, of course, is part of his uh, undoing and um, you know, part of what people come to see as, as intolerable. Yeah, and there's some reports that he was bullied in high school, um, that his dad made some pretty terrible remarks to him, something along the lines like, oh, why does the why did my good son pass away or something to that effect? Um, you think that impacted his life? I, I'm sure it did. Look, you know, it's common, again, in the psychohistory literature to look at the fact that his father hit him to say, oh, yeah, he had an abusive father. It was violent. And I think that's, that's probably true for all violent uh, parents when they inflict that on their kids. On the other hand, Hitting your children was fairly common practice until quite recently in the United States, in, in at least in many parts of the United States, and sort of those regions or subcultures where it was understood that that's not healthy were sort of the minority. So one hesitates to sort of overread into his father's violence, but you know, I mean, it's true. People who hit their kids, their kids then become abusive to their own kids most of the time or more often than, than not. So clearly it, it, it had some effect on him. And Nixon was someone 
who we know, you know, from the Watergate tapes, the White House tapes that he made, was just full of rage and anger and hatred of people he considered his enemies and the media and the Democrats and the left-wing protesters and the intellectual. He had all these hatreds that he never could really uh, expunge. They were just always roiling within him. And that was part of his undoing, of course. So that has to come from somewhere, you know, it's, it's, and, and typically it comes from our parents. And do you think he had a substance abuse problem? I mean, there's some talk about him being an alcoholic or taking some sort of prescription pills, which is um, a bit odd being a Quaker, but can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, well, it's clear that um, certainly by Watergate, he was drinking a lot and taking, you know, various drugs. Some of it was sleeping aids. You know, he had insomnia. Um, you know, some are there different reports of different you know, doctors having him prescribed him this and that. Um, and, and clearly he, he was trying again, especially 73, 74, when his presidency was really falling apart to just um, kind of stabilize his own temperament and equilibrium um, through this kind of self-medication. Um, you know, before that, you don't see a lot of evidence. I mean, there is some evidence that he uh, would drink to excess here and there. Um, there's some speculation. For example, in 1962, listeners may know, after in 1960, having lost his race for the presidency, in 62, he ran and then lost for governor of California, which is kind of a hard thing to do. It's, you know, you're going for a lower office and then to lose again. And so he comes out the next day after losing for what gets called his last press conference. He calls it that. And he, he's just angry toward the reporters and bitter and lashing out at them. And, you know, there's some people have said that he, uh, you know, was drinking excessively before that. Uh, press conference. Um, so there's signs of this earlier in his career, but it's really during uh, the presidency that you see it uh, kind of going off the rails. Well, maybe he was just trying to keep up with LBJ, which was a bad idea because apparently he was quite the lush. Yeah, well, look, I mean, <laughs> it's, it says something about our society that we elected in succession these two presidents, both of whom were extremely narcissistic and ambitious and angry and vindictive. You know, I think LBJ had in him a depth of uh, compassion and decency that Nixon did not. So I see Johnson as more of a tragic figure. People sometimes apply the label tragic to Nixon, but, but I, don't, I don't really see that as an apt quality. I mean, I guess you could use it in the sense that, as I said before, the same drive that fueled his ambition uh, also brought him down. That, I suppose, has a classically tragic uh, dimension to it. But you don't, I, finding the good in Nixon is a lot harder than finding the good in Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, well, LBJ was the master of the Senate and uh, passed the Civil Rights Act, so that was great. But just trying to cut Nixon some slack, I mean, by the time he took office, he kind of inherited a mess with the Vietnam War and some of the race riots. Is that fair to say? 
Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, Vietnam is, is, I think, is a hard case to make uh, on Nixon's behalf because the terms on which he concluded the war in 72, 73 were not all that dissimilar from what he probably could have done when he entered office in 69. Um, so the question of why it needed you know, another four years, and I think if my numbers are correct, another 25,000 uh, American deaths to say mm-hmm. nothing of all the Vietnamese deaths. I mean, one thing that just to diverge here from the program, people, when people compare Afghanistan or Iraq to Vietnam, it's just sort of absurd, at least on the level of the cost to America. I mean, the cost in American lives, 55,000 American soldiers in Vietnam, you know, uh, Afghanistan was, I think, uh, less than 3,000. And so it, Afghanistan never occasioned the depth of divisiveness and, and opposition at home that uh, Vietnam did. So Nixon certainly, when he took office, knew he had to settle Vietnam. I think it's it's uh, open to a lot of debate why it took him so long. Some claim, of course, can be put on the Vietnamese. Um, you know, with, with the racial situation, it's trickier. Would the uh, rioting that was going on in Black communities every summer in the late 60s have just played itself out Anyway, I mean, Nixon certainly did take some repressive measures, but on the other hand, there were a lot of uh, good reasons to step up law enforcement against some of these, um, you know, domestic terrorist groups. Um, uh, you know, the weatherman and so on. They, they bombed. People forget this. We, in light of January sixth, they bombed the United States Capitol. It was, it was done at night, so I don't think anyone was killed. I, I'm forgetting if there were injuries. Yeah, they blew up a townhouse in Greenwich Village, killing some of themselves. Uh, there were other incidents. They killed a mathematician at the University of Wisconsin by blowing up a lab. You know, there were, I think it was a mathematician. Anyway, there, there was a problem with violence in this country that actually did uh, wane by the mid 70s, not entirely. I mean, there were also two assassination attempts on Gerald Ford's life within a few weeks of each other that mm-hmm. were serious assassination. But now, does, does, should Nixon get credit for stabilizing the domestic atmosphere? I don't know, that's, that's a, a tough one because the means by which he sought to crack down on not just violent elements on the left, but the whole left, you know, entirely, the entire anti-war movement was so excessive that, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's sort of hard to give him too, too much credit for that. I mean, I think where I do give Nixon credit is for uh, a creative foreign policy with regard to Russia and China. And in that respect, uh, he understood that there was an opportunity to diminish the tensions of the Cold War, um, particularly, you know, if Vietnam was going to be wound down. Um, And, you know, while we can argue about the pros and cons of a closer U.S.-China relationship and what this means for Taiwan and so on, um, 
you know, I think most people recognize that that was an act of uh, creative foreign policy for which he, he deserves uh, some, some real credit. I agree. Or um, you can view it as him being just a bully. And, you know, he likes to pick on the smaller countries like Vietnam and make peace with China and Russia. Call me skeptical. I don't know. Who would try to assassinate President Ford? He's got to be the most boring president in our history. What was that yeah, about? You know, I should re- revisit that. I mean, one of them, Squeaky From, was part of, yeah, I, uh, I, I'm embarrassed that I, I don't remember the details, but it's, it's, he's part of the Symbionese Liberation Army. He's part of one of these radical groups. And then, and then there was a second incident, you know, within a few weeks. So, you know, I kind of attribute it more to the kind of lingering chaos. You know, if you've ever seen the movie uh, Nashville, which is sort of the quintessential 70s movie, Robert Altman film, must see. And part of it is about a political assassination. And it's not so much about who does the assassinating or why, because that sort of remains opaque as the sense that the sense of futility and desperation and alienation, to use a word I used earlier, um, are so thick, especially you know, in certain segments of the population, that something nihilistic seems like the answer. Uh, I mean, we'll hear one point I make in Nixon's shadow is that in, in a period of just a few years, Lyndon Johnson is basically forced into not running again. Maybe forced is a little strong, but public opinion pressures him into not running again for president. So one president falls. Then we have a vice president who's forced to resign. Like that, well, that happened once, you know, John Calhoun back in 1830 or whatever it was. Um, And then you have the president resign. There are calls to impeach Earl Warren, the chief justice, a serious campaign to impeach Earl Warren. It doesn't succeed, of course. But there's a sense like that the bonds of authority in America are eroding and crumbling. That the just that sense of strength and deference to authority and respect and a well-working order that people had taken for granted is somehow quickly unraveling. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of more meaningful almost as an overall phenomenon than in each of these component parts. And again, we can sort of look at that again with some of the events of our recent history, Trump and January 6th and all this sense, you know, on the one hand, we live our lives day to day and America actually is, is running okay in many respects. But in other ways, we have a sense that like the rules and norms um, and respect for authority and uh, deference to others that make society work are somehow much more in jeopardy, um, you know, without without direct cause without like we can't we can't point to one thing that says ah that's that's the reason i think something similar was going on between say 66 or 67 and you know 74 75 that america was just in this kind of fragile volatile tumultuous state and nixon was part of the reason for that but he was also sort of a victim of that hmm. well put well, why don't you explain to our listeners Watergate and really give us a basic overview of that, if you would. 
Um, and how did that lead to Nixon's demise? Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting way of putting the question. A decade or two ago, uh, you wouldn't have had to ask that because we could assume kind of everybody knew the basics of Watergate. But I'm finding, say, with my students, that's no longer the case. Um, Watergate refers to an office building on the Potomac where the Democrats had their headquarters and where Nixon's men uh, broke in in order to uh, plant wiretaps and uh, surveil the Democrats for intelligence during the 72 presidential election. Um, it's found out the burglars are caught. Uh, they're actually caught the second time. The first time they broke in, they weren't caught. Then they went back to fix a bad tap and they were caught. Nixon immediately starts planning the cover-up with his closest aides and makes the mistake of recording that cover-up on tape. Um, so this is eventually what leads to his resignation. But during the course of the next two years, between the break-in and the resignation, roughly two years, there's a whole series of investigations. It starts with the media, at first just a few reporters, most importantly, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, these two young Metro reporters at the Washington Post. And they were Metro reporters because it was a local police story. People didn't imagine that this went up to the president. They thought it was a break-in at this building on uh, Virginia Avenue or whatever the address of uh, the Watergate is. Um, and then other, other journalists got interested. When the Watergate burglars went to trial, the ones who were actually apprehended, uh, and a couple of White House um, overseers of theirs, that led to an investigation of sorts as the trial brought out new information. And then ultimately the Senate um, holds its investigation as the evidence starts to mount that this went up higher than people realized. And so through uh, 1973, you have these uh, incredibly uh, revealing Senate uh, uh, investigations. Among the facts that are revealed during that Senate uh, 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 inquiry, is the fact that Nixon taped all of his conversations and had, it turns out we now know there's something like 4,000 hours of recordings from the White House, from Camp David, from his telephone calls. Some of these are incredibly hard to hear because the taping system was not that good. Uh, others are, are better. But on these tapes was, of course, uh, this very damning evidence of the president being directly involved. Besides the tapes, the investigations also bring forth a whole host of what the Attorney General, John Mitchell, called the White House horrors. So Watergate was not the only burglary. <laughs> um, there were other burglaries. There were intended burglaries. Uh, there was the misuse of the FBI to go after political enemies. There was the use of the IRS to go after political enemies. Um, there were was um, illegal wiretaps placed on journalists and National Security Council staffers um, that Henry Kissinger and Nixon uh, implemented as early as 1969. So you see this pattern of illegal surveillance, retribution, uh, burglary, um, all kinds of uh, illegal crimes being plotted in the Oval Office and involving the president, 
national security advisor, the chief of staff to the president, the domestic policy advisor, the White House counsel, the attorney general, like all of the highest ranking officials in government. And the more this trickles out through uh, 1973 and into 1974, the more these people have to resign, the more many of them are prosecuted, and the more pressure is brought to bear on Richard Nixon. Uh, finally, there's a war over these tapes. Should Nixon be forced to surrender these tapes as evidence? Uh, there's now a special prosecutor um, who, who wants them. Nixon fires the first special prosecutor, then there's a new one. The Supreme Court rules eight to nothing. William Rehnquist, who was from Nixon's Justice Department, had gone on to the Supreme Court, but he had to recuse himself for that reason. So that's why it was eight to nothing and not nine to nothing or eight to one. Um, but the court rules eight to nothing uh, in Richard Nixon versus the United States of America, or maybe I have that backward, United States versus Richard Nixon, sort of exquisitely <laughs> titled Supreme Court case, that the president's claims of executive privilege do not uh, apply in a criminal case where he would be effectively shielding himself from criminal prosecution. So the tapes are released. The tapes reveal, uh, as, as I said before, that as early as June 1972, Nixon is illegally covering up the break-in. In particular, the illegality lies in two things. One, in paying hush money to burglars to perjure themselves at trial. Uh, but two, in having the CIA lie to the FBI to get the FBI to curtail its investigation. Now, the CIA ends up kind of getting cold feet and not going through with that lie. That doesn't matter because Nixon still pushed the CIA to do it. So those two, those two elements of the cover-up in particular are what people remember the most. Um, once that's revealed, the bottom drops out for Nixon. Uh, Barry Goldwater and a bunch of Republicans come to the White House and tell him that his goose is cooked. Uh, he's tempted to fight it. Um, but Goldwater says, look, if this comes to the Senate, you're not going to have 10 votes, that uh, even the Republicans are against him by now. And with that, Nixon realizes there's no um, recourse but to resign. So Nixon resigns uh, in August of 1974, the only president ever to resign. And I think for that reason, you know, Watergate remains to the, the benchmark for presidential wrongdoing in its magnitude and in its consequences. So he, he resigns because he sees the writing on the wall. He's about to get impeached if he doesn't resign. Exactly. You know, I'm going to try to play devil's advocate, which is hard to do in this episode. <laughs> That's <laughs> Spy, right. Spying on your political rivals is uh, pretty common nowadays. Well, and there had been spying on political rivals before. But again, you know, if it had been just one instance of planting a, a wiretap on George McGovern or on the Democratic National Committee, he probably could have withstood that. But it was so much more. Um, you know, one of the break-ins was of a, the psychiatrist's office, uh, Lewis Fielding's office, 
psychiatrist to Daniel Ellsberg, the man who had leaked the Pentagon Papers, that you know the secret study that had shown um, sort of the depth of uh, U.S. involvement in Vietnam and how we sort of knew uh, the war was going worse than we said it was. Um, you know, so here's a man who who leaks this to the press, and what do you do? You send burglars to his psychiatrist's <laughs> office to dig up dirt. Um, uh, another one of the burglaries was it was never carried out, but was going to be to the Brookings Institution, where uh, it's speculated Nixon thought they had stuff about his um, kind of back channel um, conversations to try to keep the South Vietnamese from accepting Lyndon Johnson's peace overtures or beginning peace overtures uh, in the 68 campaign. Yeah, and then, like I said, all these other things, the enemies list, the use of the FBI, the use of the IRS. And at a certain point, people began to realize the president was a criminal. I mean, it, it was it, it was not, um, there was no ambiguity there. I think perhaps 24%, you know, low 20s stood by Nixon at the very end. But even they probably, if pressed, would admit that he had done some very serious things, but they would they would use a version of the argument you just did. Well, everybody does it. He wasn't the first. Well, the Kennedys did this, or LBJ did that, which might be true, but in the end, isn't all that relevant. I mean, in, in some cases, it might be relevant if there's a very common behavior that we all turn a blind eye to, to suddenly seize on it, does seem hypocritical or opportunistic. But, but that's not what what Watergate was, and I think most people most people knew that. Yeah, well, it's one thing recording somebody without their consent, which is I think legal in a handful of states and illegal in other states. It's illegal here in California to record someone without their consent. It's another thing to commit a felony, which is you know committing burglary. That's right. uh, that's never good. And, and I really think this is a pivotal moment in our country's history when President Ford pardoned him because it sort of set the stage for, I mean, what happened the last last couple of years, right, with President Trump, one can argue. You know, I'm of two minds on the pardon, and I really, uh, I really am unresolved. Uh, <laughs> there's this great story that uh, Bob Woodward tells when so the morning uh, after it happened, um, Carl Bernstein calls him up and he says, the son of a bitch, pardon the son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, um, at the time, a lot of people were outraged because, well, for two reasons. One, they felt the president should see justice. It had become kind of a mantra to say no one is above the law. During Watergate, you know, we heard that over and over. Americans heard that. And that means Nixon should go, go to trial and, and face uh, punishment. Um, I think, uh, you know, it was, it was uh, also upsetting because there was more to be learned. You know, one wanted to hear what Nixon would say under, oh, maybe he would lie, but one, there, was a, there was a truth seeking purpose as well as a justice seeking purpose 
um, to, to putting it on trial. For both those reasons, I think, you know, quite, people quite legitimately were upset with Ford. And it may be one reason he lost the 1976 election uh, to Jimmy Carter. On the other hand, you know, many decades later, he was given the Kennedy Library's Profile and Courage Award. Many people changed their view. They came to see that despite Nixon not having gone to trial, the verdict on Nixon remained unchanged. I mean, you know, he has his apologists still, but very few people uh, deny that he was a criminal president and that the right thing to do was for him to resign. And so in that sense, justice was served and, and Ford did spare the country just a continued ordeal. I mean, uh. think about it now. I mean, we are still, of course, dealing with the after effects of Trump, but not in the news like every day. And I don't think anybody's saying we should, well, Republicans are saying, but I don't think, you know, it seems quite reasonable to want an inquiry into January 6th. But, you know, there, there is a sort of measure of relief and a need to move on that comes at a certain point. And I think you know, there's an argument to be made that, well, you know, Ford had to get past Watergate and he had to push the country forward. And although in theory, it would have been better for Nixon to uh, sit in the dock and face the judge. Um, not that much was ultimately lost in the end, because again, his his place in history did not get whitewashed ultimately. That's true. It's just uh, it's a bad precedent when the uh, president is above the law. Um, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And uh, with respect to what happened on January 6th, when they teach incitement in law school, it, they they basically teach you that it's it's almost impossible for the government to prove incitement because of all the free speech protections. You have to, uh, the speech has to lead to imminent lawless action. Right. Has to be likely to produce such action. In my humble opinion, what, what Trump did on January 6th, I mean, that is like incitement to the letter. So uh, he got off, Nixon got off. Um, and it's just, it's a bad precedent for our country, but you make a great point. I mean, if you're looking at it from president Ford's perspective, you know, he's trying to unite the country and move on during troubling times. So tough situation, right? And it's easy, it's easy for us to Monday morning quarterback. Right. I mean, one difference too, between the Trump and Nixon situations, the country was actually quite polarized in many ways in the late 60s and early 70s, the parties weren't polarized in quite the same way. Like you had liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats in ways you really don't anymore. But you did have a coming together uh, in agreement, um, you know, about Nixon <laughs> that I mean, Republicans, Barry Goldwater wanted him gone, but also liberal Republicans like Lowell Weicker wanted him gone. You had, there were rank and file Republicans who stood by him, but the opposition to Nixon was deep and wide in the Republican Party and among conservatives. William F. Buckley changed his mind. George Will was one of the voices against him. Um, so, you know, whereas with Trump, 
unfortunately, you know, the parties, and in this case, I think particularly Republicans are so, um, you know, uh, what was the word kind of uh, attached for political reasons to their leader that um, they couldn't do what probably many of them knew was the right thing to do. I mean, look if Liz Cheney, who, you know, is pretty hardcore conservative, uh, could see it was the right thing. Um, I'm sure others could see that too. They just didn't want to uh, kind of go all the way. So I, I think that's a big difference is just the sense of it's, it's that much harder to go against your party, go against your president today. Uh, and that, I think, is very unfortunate. Yeah. Well, just in, in closing, what else do you think we can learn from the Nixon presidency, both good and bad? Yeah, well, look, I mean, <laughs> I'll, I'll urge listeners to go to my book because I think there's actually a, a, a lot I could uh, say on this. But I think, you know, Nixon is, in a way, this really interesting artifact of post-war America, an era where advertising and public relations and television are coming to transform what doing politics means. Um, and, uh, you know, these, these kind of battles over the symbolic meaning of our presidents. And you see this again with Trump, you're starting to see it with Biden. Um, really, I think is a very fruitful way of looking at what happened. Because if we look, if we try to look just at their policies, we just miss so much. And we sort of fail to understand, well, why do, you know, why do they hate Obama so much? Or why do they, you know, and, and because it's not just, I mean, policy obviously plays a role, but it's not just or primarily about policy. It's also sort of about meanings, the values, the aspirations, the fears that, uh, these very prominent um, political symbols hold for us. And so I think thinking about Nixon in that kind of framework uh, really opens up a whole way of thinking about politics. Well said. Professor David Greenberg, again, author of the book, Nixon's Shadow. I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Thanks for joining me on Lockdown Law. Me too, Ian. Thanks very much. The information provided in this podcast does not, and is not intended to, constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only.
not those of their respective employers. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error-free.